I don't know if that's uh, original or not. The idea accords with imaginative apologetics. And I've subtitled it The Conversion of the Imagination. I think that's what's missing in the traditional approach. Philosophy as a religion deals you know, with the philosophical arguments, the problem of evil, the nature of religious knowledge, and it has presumed the idea of a kind of rational beginning point. My quote here, modern apologetics has t tended to presume with modernity that reason stands in isolation from worldview, imagination, and will, and that the apologetic task is to be undertaken in the mode of reason, the isolated king that simply appeals to its own word as authoritative. In this understanding, what is missing, last time somebody brought up William Lane Craig's quote that to do post-modernity is illogical. I think what William Lane Craig actually means, it's an alternative logic. Logic is just any series of propositions, but what's important is the, you know, what logic amounts to is the coherence or the consistency of the propositions with the supposition of the understanding. So if we begin with the base proposition, Socrates is a girl, and that was our basis, or puppies are all alien beings, then we could work out a logic based upon that. So in modernity, you have the cogito, I think, therefore I am. And there is a sense then that it all goes back to that sort of foundationalism that is, first of all, imagining that human thought has coherence and is connected to being and then is a final reference point. Another way of saying the same thing, the tautologous nature of it. A tautology is just something that you just say the same thing twice. God is good. All bachelors are not married or something like that. The law is the law. The law is the law is the idea of a, the force of the statement. You know, if you're the king and you say the law is the law, it is by sheer force of the statement that it boils down to. And in, in a sense, I think, therefore, I am. It is a, a appeal to a closed system. God is something in which nothing greater can be thought. You're not really telling us anything about God in the ontological argument. You're just making a statement about filling in the content. And if we broke this down, I won't do this today. What is happening in the statement? You know, God is something. What does the something there mean? In that sentence, you don't know what the something is apart from the nothing. God is something than which nothing. That is, the two pairs in that word are reflecting the other word. Something has takes its meaning over and against the nothing, and the nothing takes its meaning over and against the something. What Anselm is doing, what Descartes is doing, what is happening in modernity with this form of reasoning is it kind of backs you into a corner. There is a necessity to the thought, but the necessity is actually contained there in the sentence. The sentence isn't saying anything. God is something than which nothing. We end up with a sentence that is only referencing itself. Both words are referring to the sentence itself and to the other word in the sentence. So, you know, think here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil.
The good is understood, constituted over and against the evil. The evil is that which is constituted over the good. You need the opposed pairs to understand one another. With Anselm, he, he hits upon this formula, and he becomes very satisfied with the formula, almost in the same way that Rene Descartes becomes very satisfied with I think, therefore I am. Because the statements, they close in on themselves. They make reference that seems to be inescapable. At any rate, what Anselm is saying about the ontological argument, it is a necessary argument. That is, you can't refute this argument. And that's what's being claimed in apologetics, that you're going to prove God on the basis of this absolute argument. The problem, the picture is there's a complete dependence on reason very much like a complete dependence on the law. It presumes that the power stands alone and that it need not be coupled with the narrative promises of God. You know, think of the Ten Commandments. Do the Ten Commandments stand on their own? Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Does that stand on its own? Apart from the narrative reality, you hear this voice And the one speaking is in Egypt, and it's the god of the Egyptians. And the the statement, thou shalt have no other gods before thee, only makes sense in that you understand God is the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that's... In other words, God in the Bible is not someone apart from the narrative reality of his having been revealed. And I would say that's not just true of the Bible. That's always true that the presumed God of the philosophers is what we imagine we're doing is escaping a kind of narrative reality. But if you understand anything about worldview, you understand, well, no, actually all of us exist in a world. And so the kind of arguments that take place in modern apologetics, they may in some sense make sense in a particular worldview, But to imagine that they are some sort of universal foundational kind of arguments misses the point that what is actually foundational is the worldview itself, not the arguments that may cohere within that worldview. So this is what I mean by a narrative apologetics. And I think this is just all that scripture is doing. It's an appeal to, here is this narrative, here is this story. And narrative or reason devoid of worldview makes no more sense than law devoid of the promise given to Abraham, the story of the Old Testament. So what's given to us in Scripture is not simply a picture of the way that Christianity works. This is the way that all thought works. That is, it's always an appeal to a web of understanding, and in that web of understanding you can make... You know, this is Wittgenstein, G.E. Moore holds up his hands and says, I doubt this is my hand. Wittgenstein says, well, you can play that game, but the way you're playing that game is in a web of understanding that's already there. Mm-hmm. And so last week I quoted Howard's natural theology divorced from a full doctrine of God cannot help but distort the character of God and accordingly in of the world in which we find ourselves. This is what he's saying. We need a full blown narrative understanding otherwise the God that we get in Anselm who by the way Anselm is just using Plato 
Aquinas is just using Aristotle. And I say just, there may be mixture of Aristotle and Plato in both of those, but we tend to group those accordingly. The God we worship cannot be truthfully known without the cross, which is why the knowledge of God and ecclesiology or the politics called church are interdependent. We know who God is in a particular context, through a particular culture, through the understanding of the church. So Fowler says we betray ourselves as well as our non-Christian brothers and sisters in apologetics if we imagine that the cross of Christ is incidental to God's being. This is sort of our study in First John last night, that God revealed to us in Christ is not, oh, well, here's additional information. No, this is all the information we have, that John says, if you deny the Son, you do not have access to the Father. You have access to the Father through the Son. You understand that the whole apologetic enterprise, as we have it in Anselm's and in modern apologetics, you're not talking about the specifics, usually, of the the revelation that we have in Christ. You're talking about a philosophical God. So in the wake of the Enlightenment, imagination was divorced. You know, we could say imagination, we could say worldview, was divorced from reason. People pictured imagination, oh, that has to do with the emotions, that has to do with enthusiasm and superstition. So that quite literally, they're going to divide up human emotion, human imagination, and human reason. And what you're doing in apologetics, you're getting to God through reason devoid of imagination. What I want to say, and not just me, that people doing an imaginative apologetics, let's incorporate a holistic approach uh, to God. Colossians 2, 2-3, Only in Him we do we have the full riches of complete understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is an understanding that shatters all previous systems. Paul says these fine-sounding arguments in Colossians 2.4. Karl Barth says, I can only see the plain destruction of Protestant theology and the Protestant church. I can therefore only say no here to the Analogiantis, to philosophical theology. I regard the Analogiantis as the invention of the Antichrist and think that because of it, one cannot become Catholic. Whether he's right about Thomas's Analogiantis, I think he's right about the Christianity that he's encountering and equating with the Antichrist. James Cone says this about white racist, or, or just about Christianity and in the United States. He says it's of the Antichrist. When, when somebody says the Antichrist, they may get the idea of a diabolical, you know, something that presents itself in a diabolical manner. But I think here, too, what Bart is describing is the liberal Protestantism of his day, the, the modern liberal Protestantism. I don't think he's really has so much issue. You know, his, his teachers sold out to liberal Protestantism. And so Barth is really striking out against modernity. 
And to the degree that the Analogia Entis has in some way been incorporated in that and supported that, I think that we can agree with him. This is from Bart. Natural theology, Bart says, is guilty of definite error, not only in regard to God as he is known in Revelation, but also in regard to man, in regard to the world, in regard to unbelief. Unbelief, just because it is unbelief towards God, is far too strongly and far too inwardly orientated to the truth. What he's describing here is the systemic doubt that is the foundation of modernity. He's saying is really grounded in a system of unbelief. This may not be apparent to us until we look at what happened to Christianity in modernity. It turns from deism to atheism, right? That the unbelief is is apparent. For Bart, this is how it was the denial of natural theology as well as the discovery of the Christological center in theology were of a piece with his opposition to Hitler. His refusal to take the oath of loyalty to Hitler, which meant the loss of his position at Bonn, was inevitable given his theological development. Two things here are opposed to one another. He's going to do a Christocentric theology, and he's going to pit that against a natural theology. Those two things put him in opposition to Adolf Hitler. Let me suggest that that is always the case. That when we take the New Testament in the way that, and maybe not in all the details, but in the way that Bart is saying, we're going to stand opposed to the principalities and power. To the degree that we accept a theology of pure nature, I think that to that same degree, we imagine that God is working through the principles and powers and worldviews and religions of the world. Those are two very different worldviews. Again, I don't mean to say that Bart got this right in all the details, but I have to go with him. I believe that sin is involved with deception, and that deception is manifest then in the principles and powers and worldviews and forms of thought that we have in this world. Now, is a deception always a lie all the way down? Yeah, if there were no truth in it, it wouldn't be a very effective deception. So the best kind of deception is one that twists the truth. And that's what I would say. It's not that people in sin are devoid of truth, but I would say they're devoid of big T truth. In other words, their truths do not put them in relationship to God. Their truths put them in relationship to an idol. This is, you know, obviously Satan quotes scripture, and we can, you know, you can talk about this in many ways the idea of the analogy of being, we can see the fingerprint of God in nature, that we can use these arguments to come to some understanding. But the problem is that the profound role that the that apologetics in these arguments have played historically. Metzger writing on Bart has put this through his study of scripture, especially Romans, Bart came to see that what mattered were not human thoughts about God, but rather divine thoughts about humanity. Such thoughts form the content of Scripture. It is not the right human thoughts about God which form the content of the Bible, but the right divine thoughts about men. That's why it's revelation. 
it is a revelation it's a special revelation from god revelation is become a kind of minor category in a theology in which the cross of christ and redemption is not foundational or not the chief cornerstone but is in fact just an additional fact this is the picture of the two books you know the book of nature and the book the bible and the two things kind of become pitted against one another and of course reason and nature comes to predominate i think that what happens in a natural theology is very similar to what paul is doing in romans 7 there's god in romans 7 but god is an object and god is perceived mediated through the law it is not the god that we would cry out abba father to in apologetics the same thing is the case that we end up convincing people of the rationality of what we believe as if it were simply another fact about the world okay given your worldview i'm going to convince you of god we want to do more than convince them of god as a part of or piece of the furniture of an already existing world view we want to understand that their whole world view needs to be changed up and we want them to understand who god is in a participatory way all of our experience of reality uh, is changed up so we need a religious imagination to give us access to the divine and to the reality of this alternative understanding i don't you guys know who richard swinburne is I think he's the the classic case of this. He wants to calculate the statistical probability of the existence of God. He calculates the statistical probability of the resurrection of Christ. He gives us calculations on evil. In other words, he wants to make it all a rational process. But what I think he misses... And he he's, does this quite brilliantly. You know, he teaches at Oxford University. He's an Oxford Don. But what he's giving us is a Christianity that is reducible to the calculations of modernity and not a shift in worldview. I would say that's the attempt that we have, not just with God, but that's the problem of in Romans 7 is Paul's talk about of objectifying god objectifying the eye in and through the law false reason and deceived imagination arise together that you know this is the fall of man that uh, they would use knowledge to displace god just as the jew would use the law to displace the god so the modern apologist would use reason to displace faith do you need faith in a system in which you have an absolutely an absolute reason a necessary argument the challenge of apologetics and theology is to provide a compelling account of god and god's redemption of creation in a world constituted by practices this is how us that have made christian speech unintelligible particularly to those who continue to think of themselves as christians the christian apologist cannot defend the god of the bible on a foundation that presumes doubt is a foundation maybe that's the final word so what we're trying to do is change up people's imagination then once we do that then we can use a kind of an imaginer what would be a natural theology to begin 
without what Anselm is doing. He's going to set aside scripture. In other words, he says that. Actually, he says that in the proslogion, the monologion. He also says that, by the way, in Curdu's Homo. What he's saying is, can I prove God, not with an appeal to special revelation, not with an appeal to faith, but simply using what is naturally given in, in human reason? Now, your question is actually more profound than, than you've imagined. Uh, <laughs> and that is that, that when we talk about pure nature, is that devoid of grace? And this is kind of the argument in the Nouvelle Theology that, well, nobody ever said there was a pure nature. But we can set that discussion aside for the moment and say, I think that's what Anselm is doing. And that's the problem with what they're doing. There is an appeal to an interior understanding. Anselm says, close the door of your room and close the door of your mind and enter into the place from which language arises. Secret private language. Your secret language. He's going to take you on an inward journey into your mind. Anselm's argument is not an appeal to nature as it exists out in the world. It's appeal to human nature. And, of course, what he's, what he's thinking is that God has created us in his image and that we can appeal to our image and find God there. But I think that's not quite what the word image means. In fact, you end up with an image devoid of God. Even in Curtis Homo, he says, I'm going to argue for the reasonableness of the crucifixion. He uses, it's not that there is not kind of scripture in the background, but that's not his point. Karl Barth likes Anselm of Canterbury, and what he's saying is, well, no, it's not an argument devoid of revelation. It's an argument within revelation. I think Barth is wrong there, the, my reading of Anselm. So natural theology isn't a liberal leaning, but it's actually more of a, like, an apologetic type of approach. Because I've always just thought that natural theology would go more towards a what is labeled liberal but it's more fundamental it's uh, what the, your, your friends down here believe yeah they would call imaginative apologetics liberal yeah uh, and without uh, understanding so your your question is it connected to liberalism well Bart would say yes it is oh yeah that's precisely where theological liberalism is But what a fundamentalist or a conservative would say is, no, you don't need to be liberal. But the thing is, they're arguing from the same, in other words, they're going to argue for the truth of Scripture on the basis of the same reason Mm -hmm. that the others would argue that the Bible's not true on that same basis. And that's where you get theological liberalism. Bart's point is, the problem is not where you land with these arguments. The problem is, you're beginning with systemic doubt. You're beginning on the basis of unbelief. And that unbelief then uh, may be temporarily covered by the presumption of belief, but your belief is founded in unbelief. Your faith is founded in doubt. And the doubt has primacy. Still do it the same way Descartes did. It's still a Cartesian argument. This is, you know, your fundamentalist friends are very proud of their engagement with doubt, imagining that that proves the strength of their argument. 
But the point is, no, as Christians, we actually begin with faith. Faith is the foundation. Do you just have faith without reason? You have faith in faith or something like that. And I don't think that the alternative is fideism. That's what Kierkegaard is called, uh, Mm -hmm. accused of. Rather, we can say that, no, uh, the Christian worldview has a coherence that does not, it's not simply faith in faith, but it's an acknowledgement that every system is built upon a worldview that has, begins with faith. And to acknowledge that, then, is, I think, just to say Christ is our foundation and begin there. You know, this is Kierkegaard's point that to play the game of apologetics is a kind of lie. You pretend like you don't believe to play the game. You know, let's say that I doubt. But his point is, no, you believe. And the presumption throughout is that man's problem is in some way a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding. Kierkegaard said, no, your problem is rebellion. A system then that appeals to systemic doubt, I think, appeals to rebellion in order to get to God. The way we get to God is through repentance and confession. That's not a mindless thing, but it is something that is inclusive of morality. And that's unfortunately what's missing in our picture of reason in apologetics. There's no morality in it. That's what John does. That's that's it. You know, this is why you get the Nazis. I mean, this is what Bart is saying. This is what he's up against. These people are evil. They're rational. They're reasonable. They're logical. And they're evil. And that's the problem, is that reason doesn't save you from evil. Reason does, In fact, reason delivers you over to evil. Because reason is, is itself grounded in a necessity that is uh, systemic doubt. This is the idea behind imagination. Imagination is, is inclusive of an ethic, especially your deep-seated beliefs about things. Are they things that are free of a kind of moral insight or moral understanding? Do you believe things devoid of an appreciation of aesthetics, of beauty? Do you believe things devoid of an appreciation of goodness? You know, you can go right on through. What you have in a modern apologetics is reason devoid of morality, reason devoid of aesthetics, reason devoid of uh, this sort of imaginative comprehension. And so a turn to an imaginative apologetics is to just take beauty and aesthetics and morality into account in our understanding. You know, morality is always going to be involved in it, but the problem is it may be a kind, in other words, we imagine that we can reason devoid of ethics. What you know is something that you are morally responsible for. Don't you know the right thing to do and don't do it to them extent. And to claim ignorance means that you're morally culpable for your ignorance. Jesus says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But can we continue to claim after the life, death, resurrection of Christ that we do not know what we do? Peter on the first sermon gets up and commands all men everywhere to repent. God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. We are culpable, morally culpable, 
for what we know and do not know because what we know and do not know is ultimately built upon either acknowledgement of God or upon a degree of moral rebellion. Directly against available light. That is directly against available light. If that sort of light were available in even a small measure so that it could produce salvation, I think that we misunderstand the, the cross of Christ. That's what happens when you ask bad questions. You get bad answers. The, that I think that's right. That We begin this whole thing in saying that, does God exist? That's the mo- most important question you can ask. Mm-hmm. No, bad question. You start in the wrong place. Now, if you ask that question, you got some good thoughts. But unfortunately, I don't think we know how to ask good questions. Because the questions that we would demand answers to, I think, arise partly because of our own moral position. You know, this is the problem of insisting on answers to particular questions, like the problem of evil. You can answer that question and you can formulate an answer, but unfortunately I think the presumption that you can formulate an answer to do a theodicy, you've already presumed a particular kind of universe, and what you're going to end up doing is reading that evil back into God. There's no way coming out of that. This is, you know, this is Rob Bell. I don't, he seems typical in this sense, that he asks sincere questions. And there's nothing wrong with asking these questions, but what, what is wrong is then insisting that these are the primary questions that you need answers to. There may be some things we need to suspend our understanding of, and that's precisely what's happening in Scripture. Scripture is pointing us to a different set of questions than we may have thought we needed to ask. Does the Bible begin? Does God exist? No, it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Soon. It's there, it's presumed. And the world then unfolds from that presumption. This presupposition, you know. So there is a presuppositional apologetics that I think is at least a step in the right direction. Maybe not a full step, because presuppositional, like you have it with Plantinga and others, is still, I think, one step short of a full imaginative. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.